The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Hi, welcome to Privacy Piracy. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Lloyd, this show's engineer and co-host with Mari. And if you don't know anything about Mari, let me tell you a little bit. She's a local attorney and author of several books, including her two new books, Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She's testified many times in the California legislature and U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special this year. Well, last year, but it's still playing this year. Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. She's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, Geraldo, O'Reilly, CNN, and lots of other shows. So you can learn more by visiting identitytheft.org. So, good evening, Murray. Good evening, and you should tell people that they can even see a picture of our guest tonight and his wonderful background at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Let me tell them that. (laughs) Yeah, you can tell them that. (laughs) No, I'm going to tell you about our guest tonight. I met him, oh gosh, maybe about five, seven years ago, and I have been communicating with him for um, several years now because we're in a listserv together and he always is so eager to help everybody else to understand what's going on with fair credit what's going on with identity theft what's going on with privacy issues with regarding to the fair credit reporting act so he is just a wealth of knowledge and we are so thrilled that he's coming all the way from where you were born lloyd guess where Bossier City. No, Shreveport, Louisiana yeah. is where he is right it's now. Close. Yep, and he is from what, what did they say? The uh, the crawfish capital of the world. And boy, he experienced some heavy rains in Katrina. We can ask him about that. I remember seeing some of his emails. But let me tell you a little bit about this wonderful expert, uh, David Zwack is a native of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he was admitted to the Louisiana Bar in 1991. And he's a double uh, LSU graduate, having earned his Bachelor of Science in Quantitative Business Analysis, that sounds pretty heavy, at LSU, and his law degree from LSU Center. He is a consumer credit attorney, and he's a partner with Bodheimer, Jones, Swack, and Wincelli in Shreveport, Louisiana. Now, let me tell you about him. He has a frequently uh, done so many things. He, he is admitted to practice in so many different jurisdictions, even the Ninth Circuit, which is in California. He also frequently practices in many other federal jurisdictions and state jurisdictions. He's an expert witness on Fair Credit Reporting Act issues. He's authored many legal articles. My goodness, there's just you know pages and pages of that. He lectures frequently, and he regularly litigates consumer credit, privacy, defamation, and fraud cases. In fact, I've, I've referred a lot of people to him because he can practice in quite a few places in the South and all over. He also provides... Um, a, expert witness testimony in the Fair Credit Reporting Act and other uh, similar cases. In fact, he even told me, remember uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, we talked about cybercrime, and he even has a case about cybercrime. Maybe he'll talk to us about it, cyber identity theft. 
And so he consults, he evaluates, he assists in drafting pleadings and, and discovery. He's very generous with his time and his knowledge. And um, you can learn more about him at www.bjswlaw.com. And also there's a tremendous amount of information at www.myfaircredit.com. So if you're listening, if you're driving by, remember myfaircredit.com because you can go there and see um, a lot of information about what to do about your own cr uh, credit reports, about identity theft, about um, what cases are pending, and how you might be uh, helped, and free consultations. So you might want to look at that. Uh, David, do we have you on the line here? Yes, I'm here. David, thank you so much for joining us all the way from that area. Now, you went through a lot with Katrina, didn't you? We did. The, the entire state has um, has had a number of problems. Luckily, uh, I live in Bossier City, but practice in downtown Shreveport, and our area was less affected because we live diagonally across the state from New Orleans. So we're we're a lot closer to Dallas and uh, than we are to New Orleans, and so most of the effect we felt was windstorms and rainstorms after the hurricane came through, as well as a flood of refugees that have moved north. Some of them permanently. Uh, to live in our areas, but of course we were we were glad to take them in and help them out and feed them and give them clothes and a place to stay and and of course, my house was filled for several months with college okay. friends and kids and wives and dogs and cats and fish and <laughs> <laughs> so you name it we're, we're running a commune there yeah for a while. well god bless you that's great that you did that for other people i know that they're you know a lot of people even came here to orange county and people were you know putting yeah. up people and so that's that's terrific it was it was the first time that i can never recall a major city being hit by a hurricane so direct yeah yeah it's something else i've I have um, several friends who've been there recently and say they're just, you know, really trying to pull it together there. It's not the same in New Orleans, but no. it'll come back. Yeah, I went to New Orleans. Oh, gosh, we drove 22 hours straight when I was in college at the University of Wisconsin. We went from Madison, Wisconsin, straight through to go to New Orleans, stay with our friends at Tulane. And I remember they woke me up. I had to drive over that Pontchartrain Bridge, which seemed like it was never going to end. <laughs> the Pontchartrain Bridge is quite long. Yes. And I'll bet you were there for Mardi Gras, right? That's right. Well, of course, everyone <laughs> needs to experience Mardi Gras once in their life. Yes, and that's great that they did it again. Well, let's talk a little bit about credit reports because nowadays, uh, you know, everything that you do in life practically is based on your credit profile. And now most people know that they can get their credit free credit report at annualcreditreport.com. So let's talk about, like, what, if we're going to be getting our credit reports, what should we be looking for on those credit reports? Well, number one, you need to be careful and not agree to any type of arbitration clause that might be embedded in the uh, click and the click in advance screens that come up in the course of getting on to annualcreditreport.com arbitration clauses are horrendous for consumers and you need to be very careful do not agree to it congress has approved a, a law under part of facta which gives you a right to a free credit report a year unrestricted no arbitration clauses now, once you get the credit report, you need to print each and every page of it. You need to carefully review the identification.
collection information to be sure it's accurate. Oftentimes, one of the earmarks of a mixed credit file, meaning someone else's data is mixed together with yours because of flaws in the match process at the bureaus, or identity theft where someone has used your name or some permutation of your name and social security number to commit a crime and to cause the information to post to your credit file and the fraud accounts to issue on the strength of your identity and credit file. So when you look at personal identification data in the report, make sure it's you. Make sure it's names and and first and last names that you've actually used. If there's anything that's inaccurate, you need to dispute it. Next, you need to look at the employment data and public records section of the report to be sure that, in fact, your employment is reflected on it, not someone else's, and that the public record items, albeit bankruptcy, judgment, tax liens, any type of public record item, you need to make sure it's accurate. If it's not, you need to contest it. If it is an inaccurate public record, you need to first have it corrected on the face of the public record and then dispute it with the credit bureaus to make sure it gets corrected after the public record is corrected. You need to look at the trade accounts, the credit accounts listed on there, and make sure the ratings and statuses and pay histories and balances are all correct. And last, but certainly not least, you need to look at the inquiry section of the credit report. These are the people who are poking around and looking inside your credit data, and they don't call you to tell you that they're doing it. So you need to look at those and be sure that the people who are peering into your credit report actually have some legitimate business purpose for doing so. And if they don't, you need to call them down on the carpet and dispute it with the credit bureaus and ask them why they were pulling your credit report. Yep. You know, David, I just uh, always, every time I do a divorce mediation, one of the things in California is you have a fiduciary duty to disclose all of your assets and debts and things like that. And so I I require that they get their three credit reports, and then we go over them in session. And and most people don't know how to read them, so I'm really glad that you went over it. And I do this with clients. And just the other day, uh, one of my clients had three, her name was uh, right, it had a different initial on a couple of them, but there were three different social security numbers in that first section. Right. That is often an earmark of either a mixed credit file, because you've got other accounts reporting into that file bearing those other social security numbers, either accounts or public record items or inquiries posting to the file using that alternate uh, social security number. And, and in your case, you have it two others. Right. And so that is not uncommon. We see that a lot with mixed credit files. But also, so many identity thieves are aware that they don't have to use your exact Social Security number in order to commit identity theft and have fraud accounts issued based upon the strength of your credit report. In essence, the fraudulent applications might might have your name or some permutation of your name. And and not exactly your Social Security number. They can use a 7 of 9 match and cause the fraudulent accounts to be issued on the strength of your credit. And, of course, on the back end, when the imposter has used the fraudulent account for rung up charges, that information all comes back on the back end and posts to your credit file as negative accounts uh, listing on there because it was initially issued on the strength of your credit. So it's a real problem. When you see more than one Social Security number in a, in a credit file, it's a huge red flag. And the problem is the credit bureaus do not reinvestigate or screen the credit files until a consumer complains. Exactly. So you might never know that there are three socials in your credit report and a bunch of errors until you get the report because they're not doing anything to automatedly screen those credit files. 
You know, that's so important. For example, when this particular client brought this in and she looked at everything, and, you know, I said, well, how did everything look? And she said, oh, everything looked good. You know, everything was fine. I think there was just one open account that I thought was closed. And then I went over it with her and found a ton of stuff, you know, because they're not looking at it as, as you know, it, they're also very not very easy to read. And all three credit reports from the three agencies are, are not exact format or, the, you know, put together the same way. And so that's a real problem, too. Well, the, the pro- that problem has resulted because some of the credit bureaus were forced through governmental actions and private actions, consent decrees, settlements, uh, to make their reports easier to read. And some have done it through, through their own voluntary uh, process, but most have to be forced to do it. If you look at Experian, you get a little better information about who is the, what is the identity of the person reporting the information or making the inquiry. You go to Equifax and you get normally a, an abbreviated name, which is, is very hard to decipher and decode. Right. And with TransUnion, you get much of the same thing. You get a, 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 an, an abbreviated name for the lender or subscriber or user, and it's hard to tell who it is. So. Exactly, you know, and they don't and they don't put the phone numbers all the time either. And, you know, another thing people forget to look at is whether it's an individual account or a joint account. That's uh, right. And that's a real problem too, because if you think that you're, for, especially in divorce, you know, with pe- when I'm trying to have people divide up their credit and make sure that that one credit, uh, one spouse's credit doesn't ruin the credit of the other one. So you have to make sure that you, for example, cancel your accounts when you go through divorce. Get new account new credit cards first and then cancel those accounts make sure they're canceled otherwise your spouse's lousy credit will appear on yours well you know we i had a case where a local attorney who represents a lot of policemen had convinced a number of wives or soon to be ex-wives of respective policemen to let him be the lawyer for both the policeman and the soon to be ex-wife and in the course of these dealings he would convince the ex-wife that if they would give up their rights to alimony because their husbands had been cheating, that the husbands would assume all of the debt and pay it all off. And then he would wait about one month after the property settlement, the ink had dried, and he would promptly walk the policeman over to the bankruptcy court. Oh, my goodness. And file a bankruptcy, which effectively killed the credit, both of the policeman, of course, which he didn't care because he had assumed all the debt in order to get out from under alimony. Right. But then it killed the credit of the the new ex-wife, who he had... Uh, impermissibly represented despite a clear conflict. Oh, my goodness. And, and then, and then, and then they get stuck with right. it, and, of course, everybody comes after the ex-spouse. That's right. Oh, dear. Yeah. So these are the, so these we, are the we kinds of in, things we right, try and deal with. You run into problems. When you, get, when you get divorced, you're right about one thing. Shut all the credit accounts down. If you've got some accounts or, or loans or joint obligations that you cannot uh, pay off, then you need to properly deal with those in a in a well-drafted property settlement agreement. Yes, yes. And remember, the creditor is not a party to your divorce. So you can get divorced, but it doesn't mean the creditor becomes a party to that. And they don't have to agree to it. They've got you both on the hook. Exactly. So you've got to carefully unweave these type of problems. And good domestic lawyers know how to do that. And ones that don't know how to do it or in real trouble and so are their clients. Exactly. And you know what really happens, especially with a family home, that's the big one. Because you can you can do things like 
closed credit card accounts. But if one spouse is, is providing an interspousal transfer deed to the other spouse, then and the loan was originally in both spouses' name, the lender is not going to do anything to take one of the spouses off unless one, one of them refinances. And That's often right. they don't have the money to do that. Well, so, one, of the, one of the basic rules of domestic law is don't give up the ship. Don't move out of your house. <laughs> because once you relinquish possession of that home to the other spouse, you are in an uh, inferior position or a, a lesser position of strength insofar as dealing with what's going to happen with that house. Yeah. I mean, well, in California, a, we have a yeah. little bit better laws. You know, we have you know we have community property laws that that kind of take care of that, and we deal with that in mediation. But but you're right. You know, there are are re- lots and lots of uh, real dangerous places in, in disillusion, especially with regard right. to you know even ex spouses taking the identity of the other spouse, or after the divorce, using the credit of your ex spouse to get new credit. You know, yeah, and we then, see a lot of that yes. now, and for other family frauds, parents stealing the identities of children yes. and building credit uh, files and credit histories for infant children right. only to later turn around and, and charge up a lot of, of credit on the, on the child's identity and then not pay it thinking that by the time the child is 18 it will already be off their credit. Right. And we see the other, the other side of it where younger people are stealing the identities of grandparents and aunts and uncles and parents. Right. One of the saddest cases I ever saw involved an, an elderly uh, couple from Butler, Missouri. Uh, he was a farmer all of his life, had a, had a huge farm there. Uh, he and his, his wife was a school teacher, retired, and they were living out there years, and they, they lived off their farm loan. And his son from his first marriage opened roughly 70 fraudulent credit accounts in his dad's identity. Oh, goodness. And subsequently, the dad did not know it. The FBI started tracking the son, were just about to arrest him, and the son committed suicide. Oh, dear. The dad didn't know why. And then subsequent, the FBI contacted the dad and said, look, you know, your son committed suicide because we were about to arrest him. He's a committed enormous financial fraud. And then the dad's credit, you know, he went to renew his farm loan and finds out that all of these things are on his account and literally almost lost his farm. Yes. fighting with 70 duped creditors and a whole slew of debt collectors and the credit bureaus trying to unravel the nightmare of a lifetime on top of having lost his son. Yes, such tragedy. I had something similar like that. Where The Eldridge uh, were fine people, and yeah. it was a very, very sad case. It is. I had a woman, a ve- almost the same kind of a case, a woman who married this guy, and uh, he pretended that he had tons of money, but really and truly he was taking money and credit from her. And when she found out, you know, she said, well, we got to talk about this. He went to uh, Santa Ana in California, and he went to the top of a building and jumped off and killed himself as well. And she was left with all this. So, I mean, we were able to, I mean, he even did such a thing as she had bought a brand-new Lexus with her own money, and he went and took the Lexus and got a lien against it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, wow. I mean, he leased it out. You know, he kind of leased it back. And she had no idea. Right. She thought that she had done it herself. So it's it's very sad when it's family. In fact, I think it's the 12% of identity theft is family members. Um, so Well, it's, you know, unfortunately, what we are seeing is the lending community and the credit bureaus are trying to increase pressure 
on identity theft victims who are the who are the subject of family fraud. Right. They really try to lean on them and scare them and say, "Well, we're going to put your mom in jail. You know, we know your mom did this. We're going to put her in jail, and you're going to have to cooperate, and you're going to have to testify, and you're going to have to do this and that," which is not true. Right. Uh, I mean, you're not required to go testify. You're not required to do anything other than to lodge your disputes with the duped lenders, right. and it's their job to take it off. Remember, the lenders are the ones who kicked off the problem. They failed to check out who they were dealing with, and they extended credit. It's the fool parting with his money. Right. You and I don't really care if someone commits identity theft against us, unless on the back end they're going to dun us. It's sort of, again, the analogy to the fool parting with his money. Right. I don't really care if you use my identity today to commit credit fraud against someone, as long as it's not going to come back on me later. Yeah, but I mean, it always in does. Theory, That's it always right. does. That's right. So, you know, we, we really talk about identity theft as a problem that is created by the industry because you and I ought not to have to be so paranoid about our Social Security numbers when, in fact, the, when you think about it from a policy perspective, the better policy is to make lenders and the people who are advancing credit to the imposter to be more careful. Right. And, you know, I mean, they're in the best position to prevent the fraud. And that goes back to the other old legal maxim about he who deals with the imposter is in the best position to prevent the fraud and thereby ought to bear responsibility for any damages or losses that are caused by his negligence. But, David, you and I know that that Congress is, you know, I mean, who's paying for Congress, basically? Well, we're not, you and I are not paying for their parties and their, and their, uh, and their girlfriends. So, That's I mean, right. We're, we're, we're not the ones that they're concerned about. We're not their customers. I right. mean, they're, they're, uh, they're uh, financiers and contributors. So, I mean, it's not, you know, the best we do, uh, luckily we have, we do have some good senators out there. Senator Feinstein, Senator right. Kennedy, Senator Bryant from Nevada. I mean, there are some good senators out there who have tried to do the right thing. I mean, I remember a few years ago listening to Trent Lott and Connie Mack and several others talk about repealing all consumer credit protection law. Could you imagine well, being without to, a Truth in Lending Act? Yeah, and and they're trying to water it down right now. They, you know, they are. It, well, you know what they've done, Mari, in this FACTA Act, the the, the latest. Of, you know, we went from 1969 until 1996 with no changes to the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Right. And yet, in the early 90s, when identity theft suddenly became exposed. And then by 1994, it was in the national media all the time. I remember 94. By 94, I had filed a bunch of these cases in the South, and it had really taken off like a rocket in the media. And by 96, they amended the act for the first time in almost 30 years. Right. And what they did, they added a bunch of provisions to help the lending and, and information industry, like affiliate sharing and uh, some preemption measures to preempt state law. And then they, well, you remember the 96 right. amendments when they all went to Congress and said, Congress, look, we need a reprieve from all these patchwork of state laws. Give us a preemption on many credit reporting acts for eight years. Well, lo and behold, the 96 amendments came through, tacked on to the appropriations measure where Clinton had to sign it. Hell, he needed money. And then, lo and behold, we get these preemption laws, and the defense lawyers instantly start arguing that it preempts all state law claims, even negligence, defamation, not just many credit reporting acts. Right. So in 96, they really duped Congress 
into giving them state law preemption from many credit reporting acts, and they tried to expand that through litigation, through federal court judges, giving them what they want in decisions to say it preempted all state law. Well, we got that done away with in the, in the case law to some degree. But then in 2003, they come to Congress and say, thanks for that eight-year reprieve from state law, but now we need that made permanently. Right. And then making matters worse, the Republican Congress with the Republican president, not only did they get permanent preemption of state laws, now in California you're lucky because your, your California law has stayed in effect thanks to Senator Feinstein, and, and Massachusetts, the only other state law that was permitted to stay in place because of Senator Kennedy. But I mean, for the rest of us in the United States, our state laws are gone. Right. But you know, the real problem from the 2003 amendment to the act was that they made more, they put more and more substantive law in the Fair Credit Reporting Act, but provided you no private right of action if someone violates that law. I mean, where's the enforcement mechanism? Exactly. You're really going to rely on the FTC to do something? Ha, huh, that's a joke. You have a Jones Day partner there as the head of the FTC Consumer Protection Division. I think that's, people... That's the wolf guarding the hen house. Exactly, and it's like one of the best examples of, you know, if you put a fraud alert on, now we've heard, for example, of the, you know, 80 million people who've been affected by security breaches, and right. also, you know, recently that 26.5 million poor veterans whose, you know, all their information was stolen. And and then the reality is, is what you're talking about is if they put a fraud alert on their credit report, it'll only stay on for 90 days, and they have to keep reissuing that fraud alert unless they live in a state that allows a freeze. And then, not only that, if someone issue, if a company issues a credit account to a fraudster after a fraud alert is on, they can't even sue. That's part of the, the Fair that's Credit right. Reporting Act. So that's exactly you know, what you're talking about. I talked. I taught on May 23 at the Naval Justice School up in Rhode Island, and all of the military lawyers were all abuzz about identity theft because it had just hit the newspaper right. that morning about the veterans' data theft. And I pointed out to them, I said, well, I don't know if you remember, roughly a little over a year ago, they had the military promotion list posted on the website out of the Virginia base. Uh, foolishly, all of the people who got promotions had their socials listed on the website, right. and all of their identities were stolen within 24 hours. And, and, you, and there were eight or 800 of them, I think. Right. And, you know, sure. there is, there is um, a pen, I think that there is going to be legislation now introduced to um, amend the, you know, the military ID has the social security number on it. And our grandson is, is in the Air Force and, you know, his, his dog tag has his social security number on it. His right. card has his social security number. If you are a wife of a military, it not only has your social security number, but your kids and your husband on it just to get onto base. That's so, right. And, you, you know, know, we have Barksdale Air Force Base down here, so we get so many military-related issues down oh, here. Oh, yeah, and so much fraud. And, and the same thing with, with Medicare, you know? If you, yeah. if you have a Medicare card, it has your Social Security number on it. So you know, those well, have to change, but you were right. I mean, it's really, like you said, it is industry that's in the best uh, position. position to prevent yeah, it. Yeah. Well, you know what? That was That's sort of the, the linchpin of the negligent enablement of an imposter legal theory that they are negligently enabling these imposters and, and sort of walk through the analysis. They're in the best position in drafting the application to decide what information is collected and what investigation they do. 
they're in the best position to determine how they're going to deliver the credit to the person. Where are they going? Are they just going to mail it to any address? Have they checked the address out? What about point-of-sale procedures? Are they checking ID at the point-of-sale? Rarely. Right. Not down here in the South. They're not. And then you talk about billing mechanisms. Do they notice the first payment default? Run the charging up to the max limit on the on the credit within the first month. I mean, some of the classic earmarks of identity theft, they just gloss over. They seem to ignore it in the process. They're not looking for it at the at the lending uh, at the lender. And so, you know, one of the big problems is when they finally get to the consumer who is the victim and they say, ha ha, we found you. And then they send an electronic alert message out to everyone else in the credit report saying, hey, we found them. They're now over here and they all assail the identity theft victim. You know, it's, right. it's a real nightmare for so them. The victim, yeah, the victim gets first victimized by the bad guy and then he's victimized by all the credit card uh, issuers and then all right. the other creditors and you know law what? enforcement and everybody. They, the criminal could not do identity theft unless the lender or whoever, whoever you want to say, the person providing the benefit right, right. did little to nothing in checking out who they're dealing with. We need a stronger law in place that requires it, that if you're going to utilize someone's personal identifiers to extend any benefit, and on the back end, you're going to report negative information about the person who is the applicant like in a credit extension or a checking extension or any type of benefit where on the back end, you know, there is some reporting of information on the performance of the applicant, then you ought to have a standard of care that you owe to the person whose identity is listed on the application. We need a good, strong law in place with a, with a, uh, a private right of action tied to it. Absolutely. You know, there are too many laws that are being passed where Congress says, okay, we're real big on giving the consumer information. We will give you information, but we won't give you a private right of action because the only way that you can bring a big corporation to the table and make them comply, because they're not afraid of the FTC. Right. They're not afraid of the Attorney General. If you want to make them comply, you have to subject them to private rights of action. Look at the automotive industry. What made them make safer cars? Right. How many cars? Let me ask you, if you had to guess, what is the percentage of cars on the roadway, let's say, that uh, fall apart or explode or, or roll over? What, out, of, out of all the cars out there, what percentage is it? Less than 1% by far, right? Did I don't know, but that, I remember the Pinto case when I was in well, law yeah. school 20 we years ago. We don't have the AMC Pacer around anymore either. Right, it's a glass right. car. <laughs> but let me ask you this. What do you think the, the error rate is for credit reports? Well, I know because I, I, I've read the, the United States Public Interest Research Group, so why don't you tell everybody? It? Well, I will tell you that U.S. PERG has reported it somewhere around 50%. But no, I will tell no, no, you no. That they did uh, 70%. Well, I believe it. And I, I can tell you it relates back to the deposition of Judith Chipley that I took mm. in a case called William Sheridan versus Equifax, Middle District of Florida. And in that case, I deposed a lady who was an expert witness she worked for Datafax Mortgage Reporting Company. And what a mortgage reporting company does, they take a person, a mortgage applicant's three credit reports, and they reinvestigate them to make one very accurate and complete mortgage report. They remove duplicated accounts. They remove inaccuracies, mixed file data, identity theft data, whatever the problem is, and they, they make it one very accurate mortgage report. Hmm. So I deposed her in that case, and I said, 
Ms. Chipley, you're obviously been doing this, you know, well over a decade. You're the supervisor of the largest mortgage reporting company in Florida. Tell me, in your opinion, what percentage of credit reports that you see across the board, depending on which agency, Equifax, TransUnion, TRW, now experience, what is the average error rate that you see in these reports? And she said 50 to 90 percent. Wow. Mm. And I said, well, ma'am. Uh, you know, she starts laughing after she answers that question. And, of course, being in a deposition with a transcript, I had to say, well, I see that you're laughing, so if you would, please tell the jury what is so funny about this as my poor client sits here, you know, uh, grimacing. And she goes, well, it's just so crazy. She said, she said uh, if you have a common name or you're a father, son, junior, senior, like my client was, uh, he was a third, um, it's almost 100%. She said, and look at this young man's credit report. It has the child support obligation that was rendered against his father in court in New York for 20 him? years ago for him <laughs> oh on his God. credit, on the kid's credit report. Oh, my gosh. And here he's a young man married trying to get a house with his new wife oh. and going through pure hell down in Florida, way away from New York where he and his father, where his father and mother had resided together. But that's just... An example, and when I asked her, I said, well, well, what percentage of reports, I mean, okay, maybe each report has a little problem here or there. She says, well, about half that amount, about 25% to 45% of all credit reports she had reviewed contained errors that were substantial enough to cause the denial of a mortgage. Right. And we're not talking about, oh, there's an inquiry on here that's wrong, or, oh, there's a name that's, uh, that's a little bit off, or a date of birth that's off, or a phone number. No, we're talking about significant derogatory information being put in the credit, rep- in, in the credit report files 25 to 45% of the time that is inaccurate. Right. Now, that's that is what, serious. It is serious. In fact, uh, Ed Merzwinski, who we all know who's on our listserv, yep. who is the director of the United States Public Interest Research Group, did several studies recently, and the, the most recent one said that 25% of the errors were enough to keep you from even getting a job, because remember, right. we use it to get a job. But before you know, we Choice, go, Point, Choice yeah. Point has brought a, a whole new CD and and harmful aspect to credit reporting because their reports based on Equifax reporting system contain a large number of errors. Right. I have the Catherine Taylor case in Arkansas, a lady who has been denied a job and, and other has had other problems because Choice Point keeps reporting her to have an extensive criminal history arising from the state of Illinois. The only problem is she's never even been to Illinois and is certainly not a criminal. Oh, and dear. she and and so in 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 sorting through this, what we have found is that there's another person uh, who has very slightly similar identifiers uh, to hers, and yet they are blending these ladies together. It's a mixed file. Oh dear! So mixed credit files. I will tell you this: the credit bureau lawyers will tell you that they will claim that something is identity theft, even though it's a mixed credit file, because they think it's easier to litigate identity theft because they can point to some seedy character right. off in the shadows, that empty chair at trial, and say, you see there, the criminal caused our credit bureau files to be in disarray. Right. The truth is, the credit bureau files are in disarray. You can go back and look at the Guyman decision from the U.S. Ninth Circuit where they talked about, and the district court in Guyman talked about, the files being in shambles at TransUnion, just a complete wreck. 
It is. And, I and mean, uh, these people who are working there, obviously, and and I think I don't remember if it was you or somebody on our listserv was saying that that uh, you found out in a deposition that they're limited. To, you know, the people who are working on correcting files they have that quotas. Yeah, they have they, quotas. They are paid between eight to eleven dollars an hour. Right. They are given quotas of working one consumer every six minutes. Right. Now that is a, or they get re-education with a wooden ruler across the back of the hand. Uh, seriously, they are paid based upon their performance. Right. They're given a quota. If they don't meet the quota, then they get in trouble, and they're not paid commissions. And so they have incentive to throw mail away. They have incentives to do a very poor job. This is not a revenue-generating function at the credit bureau. They don't make money when you complain about errors in your credit file. They say the buck stops with the lender. They're going to report and parrot whatever the lender tells them to, regardless of what your complaint is. They don't share your consumer dispute letters or your attached documentation with the lender. So the lender gets a very perfunctory and brief email communication saying, consumer disputes, consumer says not his or hers, and the lender is left to try to figure out what is this consumer complaining about exactly, and it perpetuates the uh, the negative data being verified and retained in file. So there are a number of problems with this industry, and they don't seem willing to... Uh, to come to the table and fix them. Well, let me introduce you again because people are going to be driving by and hearing this brilliant man <laughs> all the way with this great southern with accent. great southern accent. And they're wondering who he is, so let me introduce you again. We are speaking tonight with David A. Zwak, and he is a fabulous consumer credit attorney and partner with Bodheimer Jones, Zwak, and Winchell. And um, you can actually go and see his website at uh, bjslaw.com. Dot com and also you can get lots of great information at myfaircredit.com. Which That's the best site to go yes. to because at myfaircredit.com, there were several of us who are equity owners of that site, and we pulled together what is the best identity theft source, we feel like, in terms of bringing consumer attorneys available to answer your questions and to provide you a resource. We have a dispute forum there that is packed with content and broken out into folders so you can easily study the topic of identity theft and what is the law. And, and not only identity theft, but consumer problems. I wanted to ask you, All David, kinds. about when right before I got to introduce you, you were talking about how, you know, when there's a dispute going on. Let me give you an example. Maybe you can help me with this one. My own credit report, I saw it a few oh gosh, about a month ago. And on my Experian report, it had a negative that I was late once with Washington, what is our home loan? Washington, Washington Mutual. Mutual. or. What is it? Washington? Countrywide. No, no, no. Countrywide. Sorry. Okay. Countrywide. Well, I had had a problem where they had told, written something to me, and it was a mistake, and it was a mistake with my Bank of America paying. And I have a, a fax letter to me that they have taken off, you know, uh, from my credit report this ding, okay, that said right. I was late. But sure enough, I get my credit report again, and it's, it's on there. there. And so what what they said to me when I disputed it, okay, um, they said to me that uh, the bank had, that Countrywide had verified it, and I just got that yesterday. 
So, so you've got some conflicting step? information. You've got a letter from the lender saying, no, you're right, Mari, we're going to take it off your credit. Right. But then you've got the credit bureau responding to a reinvestigation request on your behalf where they claim that Countrywide verified it. Right. So you've got an irreconcilable conflict in their two positions, the right hand not knowing what the left hand's doing. Probably... The person who wrote you the letter was in customer service, and they recognized that you were right. They got your letter, and they said, okay, incoming dispute letter goes to customer service. They look at it. They say, Mari's right. Your dispute to the credit bureau went through the consumer dispute verification division at the at the lender, and that's the right hand or the left hand, depending on which way you want to look at them. Right. But they're not in the same department as customer service. So when that person, remember, Reinvestigating consumer disputes is not a profit-generating function, right, right. and they don't have the brightest pencils and or the sharpest pencils in the pack working in that division. Right. And so, when they saw the consumer dispute verification come in from the bureau, they checked it off, verified as reported, and sent it on back without doing the type of investigation that your letter directly to the customer service department prompted. This is not uncommon, and you know we have. We see this quite often where one division in a company doesn't know what the other one's doing. I'll give you a great example. I had the same thing come up when I was representing a lady in East Texas. She had written TXU Utility Company. They're the big utility company based in Dallas, but they provide electric power to everyone in Texas. Well, this lady had written them and said, look, you've got an error. You billed me wrong on something or other, and they, they agreed with her. Well, it came up on her credit report. She wrote the dispute letter to Experian and TransUnion Equifax. They sent their CDV processes over to TXU, of the utility, and it was verified as reported. And they kept verifying it. And even I wrote them letters, and they kept verifying it. We kept showing the credit bureau the letter. And they say, we can't accept that documentation. Well, I don't know what's wrong with it. It's a letter from your own furnisher. Why can't you accept it? But you know what happened was... We ended up suing them because she kept getting denied credit because of this very negative derogatory status that they put on a TXU account reporting. So we sued them, and I took the deposition of TXU. And the TXU person, I showed them the CDV document, what the credit bureau had transmitted to them to ask them, was this correct or not? And the lady said, I don't know what that document is. Where did you get that? And I said, well, it's your document. Your company produced it. It's what the credit bureau told you that my lady was contesting what was what you'd reported. And it shows that you verified it. She goes, oh, yeah, there's a little box down there. They tell me to put a check in that box every single time, no matter what, and verify it. Oh, my gosh. She said that under oath that she was told that no matter what the dispute was, she was not to do any type of investigation. She was simply to check the verified as reported box and send it back. And that testimony was taken in Deborah Moore versus TXU Energy, TXU Utility, in the Eastern District of Texas federal court case. What happened, David? They settled, obviously. <laughs> that was not a good day for them. Okay, so, so let's... So there are, I have lots of great stories like that. I'll, let, I'll tell you another lovely story that, that you all can appreciate while we're talking about identity theft. I have countless depositions of lenders where this same testimony is conveyed. I will say to them, is this the application you received? Oh, yes, that's the application, and we've identified it now as a fraudulent application. Oh, yes, it is. And I said, well, let me ask you, what did you do to evaluate this application? 
Well, you know, we grant credit in under 30 seconds. We're really proud of it. I mean, we grant a lot of credit, and it takes us 30 seconds or less, and we're darn proud of it. Well, okay, well, let me ask you, what is the process here? Well, we get a whole uh, box of applications, you know, every 30 minutes, and we stack them up here on this minimum wage person's desk, and they open them up, and they open the application, and they key in name, address, and social on the credit reporting terminal, and they hit that green go button over there. Do you see? Okay, yeah, green go button. And I said, well, okay, this person who popped open the applications, this minimum wage person, are they a credit analyst? Well, no. Well, do they... Do they know anything about the extension of credit? Well, no, they're just there to type in name, address, and social off the credit uh, application. I said, so, okay, if it said Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse, they don't really know. They're just typing in whatever's there. After all, you've outsourced this to India or Afghanistan, so I guess they don't know anything about how to read Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck, so it wouldn't really matter, right? Yeah, that's right. I said, okay. So now they've keyed in name, address, and social and hit the green go button. What happens then? with the application do you look do you call the personal references the banking reference credit references what do you do well nothing we flip it over and microfiche it oh, i said you don't do anything else to check out information on the application well no we don't do that we we microfiche it i said well, why even save it why not just throw it away <laughs> i mean you're done with it <laughs> and they said to get a jump on collections when it goes bad later we want to keep that information for the, after the account goes bad, sort of an anticipatory move there. I said, well, okay, this minimum wage person is keyed in name, address, social, hit the green go button. What happens to the name, address, and social transmission? Well, it's shot to the credit bureau electronically. The credit bureau automatically generates a credit score by crunching the credit report data, and then they shoot a credit score back to our computer system, which the minimum wage person never sees the credit score, the computer automatically decides if it's above or below our preset scoring cutoff. If you're above the score, in essence, you've got a good credit score above our preset cutoff, it automatically sets up computer screens with whatever identity the name, address, and social was keyed in and shoots a credit card out to whatever address was on the application, and you're now in business. You've got an active credit card. I said... It's all that easy, right? Yeah, it's that easy. I said, well, let me ask you, what happens if the credit score comes back below the preset cutoff? I said, does the human being there at the terminal know that it's denied? Well, no, they don't know whether it's approved or denied. I said, so your computer gets a credit score, and if it's below the preset cutoff, well, how do you send a, a denial letter? How do, you, how do you decide that why you're denying them credit? And the answer is that the credit bureau supplies numerical denial codes that are shot back from the credit bureau computer to the lender's computer, and those automated codes decode into text messages. Wow. So the credit bureau decides the ostensibly legitimate reasons to deny you credit. So when you get that little denial letter that looks like Dave Letterman's top four list instead of top ten, and it says derogatory credit, unable to verify address, insufficient income, those reasons are not reasons that the creditor came up with. The credit bureau supplied those four reasons or less. Some of those denial letters are formatted to only cite one or two or three denial reasons. But those denial reasons come from the credit bureau automatedly to the credit lender's computer and automatically generate text messages 
on the denial letter that is shot out to the person, and it is totally automated. Wow. So, David, you know, with the new, some of the new sections of the Fair Credit Reporting Act that, like, you have to be told what your credit score is if you're denied, you know, a credit for, like, a lender and stuff like that. Well, that's easy that's enough all, to automate. That's yeah. all, all automated, you're saying. It's all automated. Right. It's easy for them to produce it. And by the way, uh, how are you going to challenge the credit score process? Are you going to be able to prove that your credit score really wasn't that? I mean, the problem with the credit score concept is they've kept it all inside the magic, uh, the magic box, right. you know, the Ouija board over there. Who knows what your credit score is today? Let's get on the Ouija board and figure it out. Right, I mean, and every day seriously. could be different. I mean, that's what I tell people. If you know that you're going to apply for a loan or a house or something like that, go and pay off all your credit cards and then, you know, wait a couple of days and don't, don't charge anything and then have them pull the report because the score can change from day to day. Right, David? Absolutely, because each and every day, data is washing in and washing out of the report. You need to look at a credit report like a very fluid object. Right. There is data that comes into the file almost every day, and there's data that falls out of the file due to obsolescence or other reasons every day. But, you know, one of the biggest problems with identity theft, Mari, and what we really pushed for was a permanent consumer alert statement listing the consumer's accurate address and phone number. Remember several years back due to litigation, the Bureau started including a consumer fraud alert statement down in the consumer statement box. It says, do not extend credit unless you contact this consumer at this address and right. this phone uh -huh. number. Uh -huh. Because what happens with identity theft, as your legitimate credit accounts report into your file each month, Consider that like one pool of data washing into the file every month and updating every single month, every single account, every single inquiry that occurs. Anything reporting in is washing in personal data, uh, personal identification data, and account data every month. Now, if you've got an imposter using your identity or some permutation of your identity, there's a second pool of data that's washing into your credit file at the same exact time. Right. And what happens is, as that data is coming in, it's causing your address to flip because each incoming account will change your address data. It's called the address slide, and it causes whatever the present address is to slide down to be a former address, and the new address coming in is at the top. So what happens is, as the fraudster's out using a bogus address mail drop, it's causing that address to repeatedly slide into your file, and the name on your file can change also. And some of the other data will slide. So you consider like the address to be like continuously spinning as your legitimate account data comes in and the fraudster data comes in. It's altering that ID data. And so what happens is, let's say a, a, a prospective duped lender, because remember the fraudster is still out there committing new waves of fraud. They may pull the report and see the bogus address at the top, and it legitimizes the fraudulent application because the bureaus are doing nothing to fix your address and your name and your other identifiers. And further, they're doing very little to provide security alert. So what we did as a suggestion was to litigate the, with the bureaus and force them to put a more permanent address and phone number. Now, the problem is they put it in the consumer statement box on the report at the bottom. As you know, it's that right. text message at the bottom. Putting a text message in the body of a, of a credit report file does not prevent access to the file. We have argued that identity theft victims 
don't care about instant credit. They want their credit report vaulted and taken offline. Let's get it offline where the imposter can't create new accounts while we're trying to get it cleaned up. Because, see, as the, as the victim is writing the disputes and getting their credit corrected, the imposter's out there creating another wave of, of imposted fraud that is now washing into the report after that. And so it's a perpetual problem. As you clean it up, the imposter's able to go out there and create new waves of fraud with new dupe lenders because the security alert and fraud alert mechanisms at the bureau level are a joke. That's right, and that is why way back when I was a victim, and what you described was exactly what happened to me. I had my evil twin. I had, you know, one profile that was always paying everything on time, and then I had this this dark side. You know, it was it was like the bad and the good. Right. But the but what we did here, and this was what I had asked for back in 1998, if you can believe that. 1997, I went to the California legislature and begged for a security freeze, and we finally, in the beginning of 2000. You know, we finally got a security freeze law, which does right. allow, in, in the state of California, we were the first state to get a security freeze in which you could say, hey, you know, take my profile offline and I'll give you a password if I want to get credit and then you can open it up. And we have quite a few states now. Right. But well, Yeah, well, well, Louisiana now has a security freeze law, which is caused a lot of hoopla over here uh, right. amongst the industry because they're not too happy about it. But, you know, we followed the lead of California, much like we do in, in other areas of law. And, you know, though, though I think we have the only code Napoleon, <laughs> but you all have a civil code out there. I know about right, that. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you may have had it first, but we have a civil code, too. But, the, you know, the, re- the reality is, is because there's no teeth, like what you were talking right. about before with the with the fraud alert. And because, you know, I had, you know, literally hundreds of victims who say, Mari, I had the fraud alert on and there were still fraudulent accounts open. Yeah, it does not stop automated application processing. Right. It does not take that file offline. The industry says we have no legal requirement to take you offline and we're not going to do it. They treat you as their commodity. You're not their customer. They do not want to do anything that is going to remove their ability to sell a credit file. They make money by selling credit files. And exactly. that's it, pure and simple. If their inquiry by their customer doesn't hit a credit file because that file is offline, they don't make a sale. They don't ring the cash register. Exactly. And so consequently, they don't have an incentive to do it. And again, if their customers, being the lenders, debt collectors, etc., don't tell them to do it, they're not going to do it. They will. They will. Um, they will sit there and absolutely testify unequivocally that they will not follow the Fair Credit Reporting Act. That the buck stops with their customer. They will parrot their customer's response, and they don't care how many times they get sued over it. They are going to stand behind it. There is a real strong symbiotic relationship between the lending industry and the credit reporting industry and between the collection industry and the credit reporting industry. Right. And, and what's, what aggravates a lot of us privacy people is that, you know, now, yes, the, the uh, credit reporting agencies have the creditors as their 
uh, as their customers, but they're also now getting into the business of setting up these monitoring services and these fraudulent. Well, the, you know, monitoring, resolu- the monitoring service is is very serious because number one, it's got an arbitration clause in it. Right. Hey, there's your arbitration clause and waiver of jury trial, waiver of damages, waiver of class action. You know that, but the arbitration clause has been the biggest problem for consumers ever since the uh, 1991 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Carnival Cruise Line versus Schutz. I mean, through dicta, the Supreme Court created a loophole through which all of these uh, adhesionary uh, anti-consumer clauses have come into existence in consumer credit contracts. I mean, yeah. it's a real problem. I mean, nowadays you can't get any type of credit or banking or any benefit without it facing an arbitration clause. And going to your doctor. The same right. thing with your doctor and your dentist. You know what? No consumer understands that. They they may look at these little standard form contracts, and, and they're often pushed in their face right. in the midst of needing emergency care or needing to buy a car, trying to get out of a car dealership right. after going through the rigmarole and being held up at the dealership for hours and then being sh- having papers shuffled in front of them and under uh, very speedy circumstances to get it signed, and they don't realize what an arbitration clause is. No one points it out to them. No one tells them what it means. They don't understand that they're giving up rights. And, and you know by what? The way, but, David, what? The, 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 yeah. the reality is, is if I had um, a woman who went to a doctor, and she called me and she said, I said I didn't want to sign the arbitration agreement, and so the doctor said that they would not see her. So right. if you don't accept the well, arbitration agreement... Well, one-sided, you, unequal bargaining yes. power, what is and you know, exactly. the courts, I think, have lost their mind in this respect. Yes, they if have. The, if the, yeah, if the, <laughs> how does the arbitration company make money? They only make money if their name is put in the contract. Who's drafting the contract? Yes. The lender or the person who is the superior bargaining position, the person who will foist that contract under its standard form terms on the little party or the lesser party, the, the, the consumer. And so it seems to me courts have kind of lost their mind where it pertains to arbitration. Because how can you say that the arbitration company is not biased? They, are, they exist solely at the behest of the, the contracting, the person who drafted the contract. Exactly. So are they really going to rule against them? I mean, what if I could set up, and Mari, you and I have a contract, and we get into a dispute, and I say, okay, Mari, we're going to have my wife as the arbitrator. What are the odds that you're going to get a fair shake? I mean, it's insane. Well, right now, Lloyd is my arbitrator here telling me that we got... That <laughs> I didn't we... sign an arbitration agreement, however. <laughs> now, right now, he says we got two minutes left, so I want oh, you to be... I want you to look at your watch so I don't have to cut you off, and I want you to tell us what we can see at myfaircredit.com and so that we can you know, do things... How we can help people to dispute well, their their credit reports and all that. So you got two minutes here. I got two minutes. Well, in the first part of the two minutes, I want to tell you about Maxed Out. It's a new movie by True Works out of Los Angeles. It's a movie that really confronts the credit and collection industry and the credit reporting industry. And it's a great movie. James Skurlock is the director. It has won the Special Jury Award at South by Southwest. I understand that PBS and HBO are are vigorously bidding on the rights, and we hope that Maxed Out will will hit the big screen. Yep. We know that already it is it has caused quite a splash, and it, it's a great movie. It it uh, it is both comical 
and yet it will, it will make you sad, it will make you laugh, but it will expose facts to you in a documentary format that will uh, enlighten you about the credit and collection and credit reporting industries. It's a it's a great movie. Now, hurry up because you now Lloyd MyFairCredit.com <laughs> is a site which we have put together to help identity theft victims, and particularly in the dispute forum. We have put together a wealth of content to help you understand all the different types of credit reporting problems. People being reported as deceased by debt collectors, a real nasty tactic. Uh, people who have bankruptcy-related issues, student loan issues, uh, basic inaccuracies, mixed credit files, identity theft problems. There's tons of news stories, form dispute letters, every type of imaginable litigation uh, pleading and discovery mechanism, jury voir dire, jury instructions. Uh, we even have a category of lawyer jokes if you just want to share some lawyer jokes with us. But <laughs> the point is we have tried to put together a site that will attract consumers and make them interested in learning about their credit and how to protect yourself. I will tell you this. If you take away one thing from today's show, if you have a problem with a creditor or credit bureau or something on your credit report, Always write the credit bureaus, each one of them, the Experian in Allen, Texas, at Equifax in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, TransUnion in Chicago, Illinois, and Innovus, the fourth and newest credit bureau in Columbus, Ohio. Write them a very detailed dispute letter fully identifying yourself and what your problem is. If you want to retain your rights under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you cannot simply write the creditor or debt collector directly. You must go through the credit report dispute, the credit reporting agency dispute mechanism. Write the disputes to the credit bureaus. You can always carbon copy the lender who's misreporting or the debt collector, but be sure you write the credit bureaus. That will preserve your private rights of action. Okay, now, David, D D Lloyd's giving me the high sign here. So, uh -oh. no. So, what they need to do is go to myfaircredit.com. David, right. you are wonderful. We will have you on again. Well, let and, me know when. All right. I'll, I'll come back anytime. Thank you so much, David, and well, thanks, thanks for, for joining me. us tonight. And yep. you've You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And also, remember to hear us every Wednesday night from 5 to 6 p.m. about all sorts of privacy issues. And to learn more about our show, see our fabulous guests, listen to previous interviews, download our podcasting, go to KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy. This is Mari Frank, your host and engineer and co-host Lloyd Boshaw, thanking you for joining us. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.